Welcome to another episode of Yesterday's Capers. I'm Abdullah Molim, and every week I'll be bringing you the very best shows from the past that the world has to offer. This week, we'll be looking back on TV shows predominantly set in an newsroom as we talk Press Gang, Sports Night, and the BBC Classic State of Play. Three very different, very fascinating shows, and I for one can't wait to talk about them all. So, let's get started. And yeah, I really, really can't wait to talk about all these shows. I don't know how you feel about them, Paul. This was a stellar week. Do you know, like the, um, it's another one of those weeks where you find some absolute gems in yesterday's capers. I'd never seen any of these before, but three cracking shows this week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I had heard of Press Gang. It was a CIEV classic. I think we'll talk about that when we talk about the show. But yeah, I had heard of it. The other two, I hadn't heard of them. But yeah, this week was really, really strong. I really wanted to like all of these shows. And I did. So obviously, we just have to find out the degree of how much we really like them. But no, this was a, a really, really strong week. Really, really strong. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, I've, I think I think I've got a clear one, two, three, but it's a good one, two, three. It's not like a you know rubbish, medium, good show. It's like good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, without further ado, let's let's get started right away. And we're going to start with Press Gang because that came out in January nineteen eighty nine, and some of the things happening in the world. George H.W. Bush is sworn in as the 41st president of the United States. Emperor Showa dies and his son Akihito is enthroned as the 125th emperor of Japan, immediately followed by the change in the era name from Showa to Hasai on the following day. The Lexus and Infinity luxury car brands are launched at the North American International Auto Show in Detroit with the unveiling of the 1990 Lexus LS and Infiniti Q45 sedans. Three fugitives were in the cinemas, and Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison was number one in the charts, I believe. I think Poison are quite a, um, they're kind of like a you do or you don't kind of band, really. But Every Rose Has Its Thorn is like, it's just one of those kind of like ballady, anthemy kind of like tracks. Okay, so that's one for you and zero for me then. Chalk one up. <laughs> so yeah, Press Gang. This was a British children's TV comedy drama produced by Richard Film and Television for Central. It was aimed at older children and teenagers and the program was based on the activity of a children's newspaper, the Junior Gazette, produced by pupils from the local comprehensive school. And in the later series, it was depicted as a commercial venture the show interspersed comedic elements with the dramatic as well as addressing interpersonal relationships, particularly with Linda and Spike. And the show tackled issues such as solvent abuse, child abuse and firearms control. Written by ex-teacher Stephen Moffat, more than half the episodes were directed by Bob Spears, who is a noted, noted British comedy director who had previously worked on classics such as Faulty Towers. Most of the reception and critical reception was very positive, particularly for the quality of the writing. And the series has attracted a cult following with a wide age range. So it's basically the synopsis is that famous journalist Matt Kerr arrives from Fleet Street to edit the local newspaper. And he sets up a junior version of the paper, the Junior Gazette, 
to be produced by pupils from the local comprehensive school before and after school hours. Some of the team are star pupils, but others have reputations for delinquency. One such pupil, Spike Thompson, is forced to work on the paper rather than be expelled from the school. And he's immediately attracted to the editor, Linda Day, but they bicker, throwing one-liners at each other, and their relationship develops and they have a on-off relationship. And although the Linda and Spike story arc runs throughout the series, most episodes feature self-contained stories and subplots amongst lighter stories, such as one about Colin accidentally attending a funeral dressed as a pink rabbit. The show tackled mainly serious issues. Jeff, Jeff Evans, writing in the Guinness Television Encyclopedia, writes that the series adopts a far more adult approach than previous efforts in the same vein, such as A Bunch of Fives. Some critics also compared it with Hill Street Blues, Lou Grant and other thoughtful US dramas, thanks to its realism and its level-headed treatment of touchy subjects. The first series approached solvent abuse in How to Make a Killing, and the NSPCC assisted in the production of something t of the Something Terrible episodes about child abuse. Now, you see, I did see this Something Terrible episodes on the list, and I was tempted to watch it, but I thought I can't be watching any one of these episodes about this topic, otherwise I'm a, I'm a lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. Watch I'm still any of getting episodes. flashbacks from Degrassi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With the guy on on the internet and the telephone. And I'm like, don't go in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's quite been quite a few shows that have like you know uh, covered some of these topics, and um, you know, even like um... I'm guessing for you, it hits even different. You being a dad, yeah. So these are like um, the things where, and then when they get him in the end, I'm like, get him, get him, get him, get him. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would straight in, and I, I, yeah, I, these obviously these like these are completely different watching them, watching them now. But um, I think it's, I think it's really good that that you know there, there's quite a few shows that are tackling these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Issues and it, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it also, I, I didn't watch the episodes, but I mean, I'm assuming they handled them I quite mean, well. Just because I feel a certain way about it don't mean I don't want it to be covered. These are like important stories to be told and more often than not, they tell it really, really well. The acting is really, really good. I think it it's meant to make you feel a certain type of way because it happens. You can't just all have nice, happy stories. Everybody's all, you know, in a peace circle and holding hands and kumbaya and we do we do cover quite a lot of these shows, so we hit them we hit the topics quite a lot. So uh, yeah, I mean, missing out one is fair enough. I, I think, think it's one of those where if you want to do these kind of shows and you want to reflect what's happening in society, you 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 gotta address some of these stuff. Like you you can't leave it by the wayside. Yeah, otherwise it just becomes unrelatable as well. You know. Like people live in perfect lives in perfect surroundings. Another really interesting episode was when the team were held hostage by a gun enthusiast in Series 3, The Last Word. I watched both these episodes and I'll talk about it in the, uh, in the episode run-through. The issue-led episodes serve to develop the main characters so that Something Terrible is more about Colin's redemption rather than the abuse happening to one of the characters. So the idea, I believe, came from Bill Moffat, who I think is the brother of uh, Stephen. And he was a headmaster from Glasgow. He had an idea for a children's TV program called The Norbridge Files. He showed it to a producer who visited the school, 
Thorn Primary School in Johnstone, Renfrewshire, Renfrewshire, Shire, <laughs> when it was used as the location for an episode of Harry Seacombe's Highway. Producer Sandra C. Hastie liked the idea and showed it to her future husband, Bill Ward, co-owner of her company, Richard Films and Television. When she requested a script, Moffat suggested that his 25-year-old son, oh, sorry, his son, not, not his brother, his son, Stephen, an English teacher, should write it. And Hastie said that it was the best ever first script that she had ever read. And Jeff Evans also comments that the series was filmed cinematically, dabbling in dream sequences, flashbacks, fantasies, and on one occasion, a moonlighting-esque parody of the film It's a Wonderful Life. The show had strong awareness of continuity, which will always, always get a tick for me. Continuity is, if you ain't got continuity, then you ain't doing it right. And some stories, incidents, and minor characters referred to throughout the series. Actors who played short-term characters in the first two series were invited back to reprise their roles in future episodes. And according to the British Film Institute, and I quote, Press Gang managed to be perhaps the funniest children's series ever made, and at the same time, the most painfully raw and emotionally honest. I think Grain Chill might have a, a word to say about that. This The tone could change effortlessly and sensitively from fast to tragedy in the space of an episode. Although the series is sometimes referred to as a comedy, Moffat insists that it is a drama with jokes in it. That's the perfect way to describe I think, it. I think that's accurate, yeah. And the critical reception, critical reaction, as I said before, was mainly good. The show being particularly praised for the high quality and sophistication of the writing. The first episode was highly rated by the Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, and The Times Educational Supplement. In his review, Paul Cornell writes that, and I quote, Press Gang has proved to be a series that can transport you back to how you felt as a teenager. Sharper than the world, but with as much angst as acute wit. Never again can a show get away with talking down to children or writing sloppily for them. Press Gang, possibly the best show in the world. Time Out said that this is quality entertainment. The kids are sharp, the scripts are clever, and the jokes are good. The BBC's William Gallagher called it pretty flawless, with The Guardian retrospectively commending the series. Others, such as Pop Matters, have also commented upon how the show is renowned for doing something kids' television at the time didn't do and arguably still doesn't. It refused to treat its audience like children. Comedian Richard Herring recalls watching the show as a recent graduate commenting that it was subtle, sophisticated, and much too good for kids. And according to Moffat, Press Gang had gone over very, very well in the industry, and I was being touted and romanced all the time. Press Gang's complicated plots and structure would become a hallmark of Moffat's work, such as joking apart and coupling. And the series received a Royal Television Society Award and a BAFTA in 1991 for Best Children's Programme. It was also nominated for two writers, Guild of Great Britain Awards, one pre Janus and the 1992 BAFTA for Best Children's Programme. Julia Sawala, who played Linda, won the Royal Television Society Award for Best Actress in 1993. Quick rundown of the characters. So, yeah, Linda Day, who's played by Julia Sawala, she's the editor of the Junior Gazette. She's very strong and opinionated and is feared by many of her team. Moffat had said that the character was partly based on the show's ball-breaking producer, Sandra Hastie. Although she appears very tough, she occasionally exposes her feelings. 
The mixture of Linda's sensitive side and her self-sufficient attitude is illustrated in the finale. There are crocodiles, and she's reprimanding the ghost of Gary, who died after taking a drug overdose. And what she says was, obviously, this was, you know, I'll talk about this episode later, but the, the thing that was so significant, she's like talking to the ghost going, look, I'm sorry you're dead, okay? I do care. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't care a lot. You had a choice. You took the drugs. You died. Are you seriously claiming no one warned you it was dangerous? I mean, have you looked at the world lately? There's plenty of stuff going on that kills you and you don't get warned at all. So sticking your head in the crocodile you were told about is not calculated to get my sympathy. Woo! Brutal, honest, and probably a bit true as well. (laughs) I was watching that. I was thinking, damn! Damn! Then you had uh, James Spike Thompson, who was played by Dexter Fletcher. He's a, an American delinquent who's forced to work on the paper rather than be excluded from the school. He's immediately attracted to Linda and he establishes himself as an important member of the reporting team, having been responsible for getting their first lead story. He usually has a range of one-liners, though is often criticized, particularly by Linda, for excessive joking. If you didn't realize already, Dexter Fletcher is not American. He was made to put on an American accent to try and appeal to an American audience. He's, he's like actually genuinely one of my um, favourite British actors. I think he's absolutely fantastic. Shame about the American accent, though. Yeah, it is. But I mean, um, I'm not sure if you watched Hotel Babylon when that was out. And he was like a starring role in that. And Then there's Kenny Phillips, played by Lee Ross. And he is one of Linda's long-term friends and assistant editor in the first three series. He's much calmer than Linda, though dominated by her still. And despite this, he's one of the few people able to stand up to Linda in his own quiet way. Colin Matthews, played by Paul Reynolds, is the Thatcherite in charge of the paper's finances and advertising. He often wears loud shirts and his various schemes have included marketing, defective half ping pong balls, exam revision kits and soda that leaves facial stains. Julie Craig, played by Lucy Benjamin, is head of the graphics team. Sarah Jackson, played by Kelda Holmes, is the paper's lead writer. Although she is intelligent, she gets stressed, such as during her interview for editorship of the Junior Gazette. Umloki Christie plays Fraz Davis, and he is one of the co-delinquents forced to working on the paper. His initial main task is writing the horoscopes. He's portrayed as being intellectually challenged, such as not ch- understanding the synonym synonymous relationship between the astrology column and the horoscopes okay so press gang i've spoken long enough now to be honest i think you cover quite a lot of it because um it was a really really great show i mean i i watched two episodes one from series one one from series five um there's a couple of things i really liked about it um i like the continuity of cast i thought that was really successful i think every character in it had their you know their their uh, important um, contribution to the to the overall feel of the production, um, and I think you, you mentioned it a few times, but the uh, the writing is fantastic. I really liked everything ab- ab- about this show. I thought it was it was a, it was a really nice, really well put together, easy to watch show. It captured, I think, like a newsroom quite well. Um, I've never worked in a print newsroom, but um, you know they can obviously be quite quite busy and, and and stressful, especially when you haven't got a story. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like this show. And like I said, I haven't not heard of it before. Um, everything was like a complete 
surprise. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought this was a really, really clever show. Really, really clever. The scripting, the writing, everything about this show was on point. I I had heard of it. I may have even remember seeing it on TV when I was a kid. But like I said before, I think by the time it was sort of five o'clock, I'm I'm already like outside. I I want to go outside. I want to go and play just just before dinner and just before going to to bed. So obviously this show was maybe slightly before my time. But yeah, same here. Yeah, man, I this was right up my street. If I was a little bit older, I would have definitely sat down and 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 watched this. If I was of that age where teen dramas and sort of these shows were on. Because, yeah, by the time I was in um, year four, maybe year five, that was when I really started to get into stuff like Grange Hill, Biker Grove, all of those kind of teen dramas that you sort of come on at like five o'clock. I would always be watching them all. And this would have been one of them had it had been a just thing. a little bit later. Just Yeah, just a little bit later. But no, the acting was fantastic. I think most of the those those kids on Press Gang made it onto other acting roles. You talked about Hotel Babylon. I think uh, Julia Sawala was in EastEnders for the longest time. Lucy Benjamin played Lisa, Phil Mitchell's baby mum on EastEnders. That Lisa, that's the one. I kept thinking Tracy in my head. I was like, what's, what's her name? Because she's Tracy, shot, yeah. She, so, yeah, she did. She, she did shoot Phil. Yeah, Phil. Yeah, Phil Mitchell's baby mum. So yeah, she she she's been on. She she's done some stuff. Um, I know Kenny. He 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 done some stuff as well. But I can't put my put his face on other programs. I've I seen Colin into something as well. As yeah, well. he's he's also been in stuff. Like most, if not all of them, actually went on to have acting careers. I thought the acting was was really really good. There, yeah, there is a reason why they all went on to do acting roles. Julia Sawala, like I said, won uh, an award, Royal Television Society Award. No, this was this was very, very good. I really wanted to like this show. I've never, I've never willed on a show as much as this one, and I'm glad it. I'm glad it kind of. Uh, came through for me and see Britbox, you can have all of the series can't you you don't need to put a little bit here a little bit there see y'all had the whole series of 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 press gang why can't you have the whole series for children's children's ward yeah no and also without adverts like it's amazing um because the other two shows that we watched had quite a few adverts in between um did they well, for me, they did. I'm not sure what's going on, but I had adverts every time. Well, for me, I think I watched Shorten's Ward come to me. I think my only, yeah, my only criticism was that they didn't have it all. They just had a little bit. Um, also, uh, Dexter Fletcher was also in Band of Brothers, and I could have told you that if I'd have thought about it properly, But um, which is <laughs> definitely my all-time favourite drama series. On, um, amazing. Um, so, yeah, I'm just looking through his IMDb now, and it's really, really long. So... Um, <laughs> A distinguished I think career. you could probably look at all of their IMDb's in 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 fairness, and they're all going to be pretty amazing. And they've done they've all done so much. First episode was uh, page one. One thing about this show is, is obviously it wasn't 
brought out to be a one-hit wonder. This was definitely written to be a long series because I was struggling with the names to start off with. Uh, you know, that's kind of like um, indicative of something that is like a you know a, a nice long series and a you know a, a get her into a show. So um, Spike and I put the guy from the McDonald's adverts and Hotel Babylon was my notes. Um, uh, he joins. I Chris... have bad American accent. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. A, I mean, it was better than mine, to be fair. Um, so. <laughs> um, but uh, he joins press press gang because O'Sullivan, the head teacher, says otherwise he's going to be uh, expelled. And then Councillor Murray from um, and Jumbo from Only Fools and Horses are knocking about the newsroom. She's she's been everywhere. She's a legend. I was just sort of like looking at her, thinking it's Batman. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so. Um, uh, yeah, Spikes basically goes to the um, the Junior Gazette thinking he's not going to do anything. He's just going to, you know, be the laziest guy in the world. Then he says, you haven't heard heard of Matt Carr. Kerr, sorry. He tries to ask. Oh, so Linda comes in and, like, you know, it's kind of like eyes pop out, basically. <laughs> and, and he tries to ask her out, but she's not interested. Uh, then he decides that, you know, he's going to. Um, because he tells this guy, I can't remember his name, and I know you'll, you'll tell me. But... Um, he, he, this guy says he's like, I'm gonna. You should do as little as possible. Don't even care. The guy that's doing the horoscopes. Um, Fraz. Fraz, yeah. And then, and then he says, so he basically says, don't do anything. Do as little as possible. Um, and then when he when he speaks to Linda, he kind of like you know she kind of ignites a fire inside him. And then he's like, I'm gonna go uh, find a story. And then he's tired of being a rebel. And he tells him he's like, you should you know you should you should kind of get on with it. Completely contradicting himself about thirty seconds later. So um. Uh, Linda's with uh, Matt Kerr and and, he, and she's asking for help for the for the launch of the newspaper and he basically just tells her quite brutally like you know do it yourself. Um, so and there's this guy in the main newspaper's um, lobby and he's like got a story that you know is going to blow the toy industry wide open kind of thing and she basically takes him without the consent of um, the lady Councillor Murray I can't remember her name. Um, so Spike is with a snapper and he's basically like kind of like poaching for a story. And then Colin, this is where you meet Colin, who's this kind of like um kind of I guess Del Boy-esque kind of sort of guy, maybe. Like comes in trying to sell like dodgy homework. Um and then Spike spots this guy and says, like, are are these guys um I reckon these guys are selling the, the disco to these um developers and he basically just goes straight up there and asks him and, he, and and the guy says no and he goes right that's it well we've got a story because this guy is definitely selling so he takes the um he goes back to the to the gazette meanwhile linda's speaking to this guy and this guy says like these that they're dangerous toys being sold they're lethal in fact he goes to his car to get the the lethal toys that he's he's got hold of and spike says um i want the front page because i've got a really good story and she says no and kind of like tells him where to go kind of thing he leaves uh spike meets the uh matt curdy editor and then in the bag of the of the toys is basically like this star wars toys like he brings out like this millennium falcon um and everyone's like oh my god and then kind of linda realizes that's why they were kind of like making him wait so hopefully he'd just go away because he's a bit crazy this guy um uh, and then so basically the disco is the main story and Linda goes and tries to talk Spike round and she basically says that she needs a story. So that's how he gets in there and that's the kind of character establishment episode. So the next one I watched was episode series five, episode one. So I watched the series two finale, The Big Finish. 
And so it's this is kind of like a, a flashback kind of episode. So Linda's kind of walking into a uh, abandoned newsroom. She's waiting for a telephone call to see if they still got their jobs. At this point, they're all leaving school. So now that they're leaving school, why are they going to write for a school newspaper? Tiddler is basically telling Linda to, and it kind of goes back to a flashback to a busy newsroom. And Tiddler is basically telling Linda to tell Spike that she loves him before it's too late. And everyone's saying, why don't you tell him you love him? He's going to go to America. Don't leave it too late. And so someone called Brian walks into the newsroom and he's basically like, I'm here for the assistant editor job. And Sarah has this massive typewriter and just drops it on the floor right on his leg. Oh, they're doing this uh, end of school show. Kenny has to be a part of it, but he doesn't want to be a part of it. And he isn't happy about it. Kenny and Linda are basically talking about the future of the paper. And they're, and they're saying, look, why don't we make, run it commercially? Why don't we make this into an actual venture so that we can all still keep our jobs and it's not going to necessarily be a, a school paper? Linda's basically talking to a teacher on the phone and he's not really happy about what they're trying to do because obviously he's like, look, it's a school paper. Y'all are leaving school. But obviously Linda's like, we love our job. We don't want to lose our jobs. So he's like, you know what? All right, fine. Do what you have to do, but I'm not really happy about it. I don't really approve. So they're basically going to meet Matt Kerr, the uh, editor, and Mr. Sullivan. I think that was the teacher. They're going to meet them in person. Matt Kerr's like, you know what? Okay, fine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to arrange a meet with you and the um, the board. You can pitch your idea to the board. Obviously, if they say yes, you can have the paper. If not, then you, you're just going to have to go on your separate ways. And again... Kenny's still getting told off by, I think, Colin and the others for missing rehearsals. But obviously, Kenny's like, I don't want to miss the big meeting. You know what I mean? And so Linda's basically saying, you know what? Go and do your show. I want to do this uh, meeting on my own, and I want to talk to the, the people on my own. And so basically, Spike says to Linda, I love you but I'm going to go to America if there's nothing for me here to, to stay for. And obviously Linda's like, oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then before the presentation or before the show, Kenny comes into the um, abandoned newsroom. So obviously it's going between flashbacks. It's kind of going from here to here. It can get a little confusing, but it does, it does kind of make sense if you watch it. And so Kenny's coming in to talk to Linda saying, how are you going? Are you all right? I'm just going to check up on you before a call. And then he basically goes off and does his show. Spike is saying his goodbyes and he's set to leave for America and then talks to Linda. Then he's asking Linda if he, if look, he's like, do you love me, Linda? Is there a reason for me to stay? But obviously she's like, I do love you, but I'm not ready for all of this. I just want to be an editor. I don't know what my future is. My future is all over the place. And then the telephone rings and the episode ends. And then I went on to series three. This is the middle of series three. I can't remember if it was episode four or five. But no, it's a part it's a part one and a part two anyway. It basically starts off with someone in a clown outfit shooting at a paper, and the story is saying say no to the gun club. It's kind of like a, a backward sort of thing. 
So it kind of starts off with the news report going, there has been someone shot and killed inside the newsroom and we don't know who did it and we don't know who the gunman is. And so it's basically the police going, we're trying to figure out what happened. We're trying to figure out blah, 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 blah. So this is like the last thing. So working backwards and then it goes into a flashback. And then Spike is basically saying, I could, I could have sworn I saw a clown outside. And then obviously he's like, okay, whatever. This is in my imagination. He ends up just starting flirting with Linda. Then Kenny's telling Linda that she has a budget meeting with Matt Kerr. And then Colin is basically telling Linda, look, you're not very good when it comes to budget meetings. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to sort it out. And then the guy with the clown outfit walks in and he wants to speak to the person in charge. And he pulls out his gun. And then he lets one shot in the air. And he's like, who's in charge? And then obviously Linda's wearing like a, a power suit. And obviously Linda's like, yeah, probably the wrong day to be wearing this. And then obviously he just lets another shot off and it nearly hits Linda. And then Spike is basically trying to tell her. And then obviously he's like to Linda, sit down. I want to talk to you. And Linda's like, no. And he's like, I've got a gun. Sit down. And she's like, no. And then obviously he's like, I'm going to shoot, you know. And she's like, shoot then. I wish you would. And then she refuses to sit down. And then she's like, if you're going to do something, you would have done it already. And then so basically they all start carrying on as normal. The newsroom's carrying on. They're all doing their whole back to busy newsroom. And obviously he's like, stop that. Stop that. And then he lets another shot off. And he's like, right, I had enough of all of this. And they're like, look, you need to calm down. And then they're like, they um, make him a coffee. And they're like, what, what are you here for? And obviously he's like, I don't like your article about guns. Why are you making us to be some crazy nutters? and whatnot uh, I'm, I'm 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 what'd you call it i'm not i'm not a nutter i'm not this and this and so everybody and then obviously they're like look you need to calm down and they're like we're not going to tell anybody nobody saw you walking in nobody saw you coming in or whatever nobody has to know no harm no foul if you walk away now then we'll we'll promise we won't say nothing but then little did we know colin because they have like this sort of back room and Colin basically snuck into this back room. He came out again. And then you could basically hear it outside going, this is the police. Come out with your hands up. And then obviously he's like, which one of y'all called the police? And then it just basically sets him off again after they calmed him down. He goes to uh, another kind of flashback into the future again. And the police chief is giving an interview. And they're like, how could you let the killer get away? Someone was shot and killed. And you just let that person get away in the news if someone's shot and killed. And obviously they're like, we're still trying to figure out what happens. And then the phone is ringing. Linda offers to answer. She's trying to tell the police to go away. But they're, they're like, look, we're not going to go away. This is not safe. Then Colin walks in and he's trying to talk the, the gunman down. And then obviously he doesn't trust Colin. And he just lets another shot go off. And then the gunman's like, you know what? Everybody needs to leave. Like, everybody out. Except for Linda, Kenny, Spike, Colin, and Sarah. And then we see Fraz talking on the TV. And he's like, one of my friends was killed. One of my friends is, is dead. Because the police didn't do their job properly. 
and he's obviously visibly, visibly upset. And then part two starts with a funeral, but we don't know who the funeral is for. Everybody's going to a church. Everybody's all very sad, very upset. Inspector Hibbert is talking to Sarah, who's outside, and she's very visibly upset. And the inspector has to be the one to deliver the eulogy. But obviously Sarah's not happy about it. She's like, look, you let a police, you let a killer on the loose. How could you know what we're going through? How can you know what we're feeling? And then obviously the inspector's like, look, y'all need to tell me what really happened. You're not really protecting this killer, are you? And then obviously he's like, Sarah's like, "Uh, obviously I don't know what happened. And then the inspector's like, you guys have to know something. And then Sarah basically writes a letter with everything that happened. And is you're saying, dear inspector, so-and-so happened. And then it goes flashback. And then it goes to the, the story, the back of the newsroom. And the phone is ringing. And someone called Billy is calling. And he may have something for Spike in the computer. And then the gunman reveals himself to be someone called Donald Cooper. And he's thinking, I've got myself into it too deep. I don't think there's a way for me to get out. This ain't going to work out for me. Inspector Hibbert is trying to make a call. And obviously he's going, okay, is there somebody called Donald Cooper? Blah, 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 blah. And then obviously he's like, you need to read the letter more. And then we see the coffin now arriving into the church. And then he goes back to Linda going to Donald, look, you can get out of this. You, 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 there is a way out. I promise you there's a way out. It doesn't have to end badly. And she goes, okay, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to need the gun. And obviously he's like, are you mad? I'm not going to give you the gun. And they're trying to distract the gunman. And they're trying to tell Donald that there's basically someone in the dark room. And then Donald's like, okay, go see who it is. And Fraz walks back in. And obviously it's all very distracting. They also tried another tactic where they're like, you know what? We're going to try and see if we can make the gunman nervous. And then I'm going to whack him on the head with um with a pole of some sort with a metal pole or something they tried that and it didn't really work because obviously they wanted to put the alarm but then obviously i think colin was right in the line of fire of the alarm and so they tried to take him down still but it didn't work what else happens god there's so much that happens in this um episode and so the message that came out of the computer was that this gun only has six bullets and he's already shot like five times. So all we need to do is just let him shoot off again. And they managed to do that when they distract him. And then obviously he's trying to, the gun, but obviously the gun's out of bullets. They all think, oh my God, he's already used all the bullets. Obviously they're like, oh, Colin is a, a hero. And he's like, oh, you're, 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 you're such a hero, aren't you? And then you know what my man does? He's got another gun. He pulls it out. Bam, he shoots Colin. Colin's on the floor, and then it fl- cu- and it cuts back to the funeral, and we're all thinking, "Oh my God, is it Colin's funeral?" Blah 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 blah. And then they all carry him out, and then they're like, "Okay, it's a flesh wound, so Colin is okay." And then they show Colin's face in the funeral, and now it's uh, only Spike, Kenny, and Linda in the newsroom. And obviously, Linda and Spike are kind of bickering amongst each other, and then so Linda's like, "You know what, Kenny, leave." Obviously, Donald's like, no, don't leave. And, Ken, and and Linda's like, I'm your boss. It's an order. You need to leave. And then Donald says, basically, look, I only wanted to give you guys a fright. I didn't mean to shoot anybody. I didn't mean to 
get in everybody's way. And they, yeah, obviously they get a call from the, from the Spectre going to Flesh Wound. And then Spike is like, look, you only need one person in this room. Let Linda go. It's just going to be me and you and we'll do something out. And then Linda's like, no, I'm going to stay. You go. And the Spike is like, no, Colin wants me to stay. And then Colin's like, yeah, I do want you to stay. And he's like to Linda, yeah, you need to go. And so it's just Donald and Spike now. And then Spike is like to Linda, look, if anything happens, I love you. My last words, blah, 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 blah. And so he has a, he's turning around. And then obviously Donald's like, yeah, turn around. And then Spike is like closing his eyes thinking, okay, this is it. This is the end. And then we hear a shot go off. And then Linda's like, no, Spike. And then obviously Spike is thinking to himself, at least I got the last word. Because obviously there's like a back and forth between Spike and Linda about always who's always going to get the last word. As you always do with the relationship and couples trying to get the last word and whatnot. And then obviously he's like to Spike, well, Spike sings in his head, well, at least I got the last word. Yeah, and then, then the gunshot goes off. Linda runs into the room. And obviously Donald, he shoots himself. And so what they try to do is that they try to protect his legacy in death. So they're basically saying that Donald was part of the Junior Gazette. He was part of the team. He was killed by a gunman. And they tried to make it that whole story. And they, they, they're making him out to be some kind of hero, which I thought was a very interesting uh, plot twist. And obviously, yeah, the last word's important. And then they say that Donald was in the Gazette. He was the reporter, quote unquote, that was shot and killed and not the other reporters. Man, I was watching this episode so gripped thinking, what the hell? Like, where's this going to go? I thought this was fan- a fantastic bit of writing. Vintage Stephen Moffat. He's an excellent, excellent writer. He's done some of, he's done some really, really good shows. I think he did Doctor Who for a bit, the Sherlock series. I think Stephen Moffat did that. So this this dude knows how to do drama. He knows, and this was again excellent, excellent bit of um, drama. And I thought, yeah, this was an outstanding episode, and it had me guessing turning which way where where is this episode gonna go i don't know but no this was really really good and uh yeah i mean i was gripped just listening to you talk about it to be honest i was like i don't know where it's gonna go (laughs) i mean i was i was even looking up to say who's kenny because kenny must be the one that dies in because i've seen so many others in the later episodes (laughs) so right should i do series five episode one yep go for it sweet so so it starts off, and it was obviously a brand new office, brand new everything. I saw it in a dark, dingy office. It's a nice, bright, new, modern place. And it starts off, in, and Linda's addressing the camera, and I was a bit like, that's weird. But and it turns out that she's advertising something called a strokematic, which is like a um, button press thing where you can like say words of like encouragement and stuff like that, record them, and then play them back later when you're feeling when you're struggling. Um, this is where you see that Colin is like kind of been casted into this moron type guy, and. I was not really happy about that. Um, he's like really clumsy, really like stupid, and I thought that was a real bad move there. Um, Spike is happy and dating Linda now. Um, it's Spike's birthday, and she's like, she didn't like get him a present, and he's kind of getting mad about it. And it turns out that she got him a watch, but she managed to get it on his wrist without him noticing. 
Um, she's like, what's the time? And he like looks at his watch and it's like a new watch that she bought him. Uh, so Connor's trying to chat up this this woman. He thinks she's like a teacher. And obviously he's left the school now. But actually this was a really funny clip. Although he is kind of the stupid character guy now, um, it was very funny. He ends up like accidentally zipping his tie into his trousers and stuff like that. And then in the next scene when he's in this lady's office, he's got like half a tie. Um, so I, that sort of thing was um, kind of quite funny. And and she gives him a book to take to the headmaster's office. And when he goes to the headmaster's office, like he gets like kind of buoyed off and sent away. And inside the book is like, meet me at my house in uh, seven o'clock or something like that. So, and the woman has like basically hidden a secret note inside this book. Um, so he ends up going to her house seven o'clock and she's like kind of shocked to see him. And it turns out it was meant for the headmaster and she's having an affair with the headmaster. She's his secretary. Um, I think I said she teacher earlier, but she's actually his secretary. Um, so Spike's having a party, uh, Colin comes in um, and tells Linda about the story. Uh, then they're kind of like having a meeting to decide are they going to print this or not? Because obviously um, it's just gossip at this point. Uh, this is going to bring down someone's reputation. And it's also, I think it's libel, right? So if you can't, you can't print something that's, um, if it's not true or whatever. So um, Linda says it's just gossip. Head teacher is uh, doing a, so basically the head teacher is doing a, a campaign about teaching kids how to be sensible about love um and and then basically seeing that he, he's a hypocrite and he's not fit to to be in that position because he's doing the complete opposite um so janet is a new source colin chats her up and says um <laughs> so basically colin lives opposite her right and he goes uh, and he's turns up at her door said oh i thought you might be upset you know, I was kind of just guessing things, and he's got like binoculars around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's things like that. Although, like, it's a bit stupid. The you know, it's very, very, very funny. So, um, Linda and Colin go to talk to the headmaster and tell him that they're printing the paper. So basically, might want to tell his wife that he's been unfaithful. Um, she asks Spike if she did the right thing, and basically, he says no. You can't bring a good man down because of that stuff because it's not it's not about the business and it's not good to do it or something like that. So basically saying that, um, you know, bringing the man down was, you know, wasn't probably wasn't and printing in the newspaper just because of business wasn't the correct thing to do. And there's better ways to go about it. Uh, Linda said he was disappointed in her. And that was the end of series five, episode one. I have to say, like, I did like the um, progression and how they, how they shot this. I thought the first episode was great. And the, the series five episode one was even better than that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the finale was called There Are Crocodiles. So it kind of starts with Linda and she's basically talking to someone we don't quite know who yet. And you can just see like there's a, a fire in the background. And then it flashes back to the newsroom. Fraz is very, very angry because his team basically lost football or rugby or some kind of sport and they lost 43-0. And Linda's playing because someone else couldn't make it. And Spike ends up wearing American football clothing going, how am I supposed to know you guys didn't mean football or soccer? I don't know what you guys are talking about. And then Linda's basically trying to bang on the door going, who's in the toilet? And there was basically someone who was missing who was meant to play, but Linda played instead. So they're knocking on the door and it turns out it was this person. And he basically OD'd in the toilet and a needle dropped on the floor. And so... They're thinking, oh my God, it could be the end of the Junior Gazette. 
because they don't want to have a reputation for um, drugs. And then Linda is talking about a bad dream that she has. But then obviously, yeah, this is when I was talking about the harsh things she was saying about um, Gary. And so she's just like, yeah, the, the same lines, as I said uh, before. Julie wants to know, Julie's basically now the uh, assistant editor, I believe. And she wants to know what's up with uh, Linda. And she's and they're basically looking for the hypodermic needle because nobody knows where that's gone now. And we find out that his name was Gary. And yeah, he's Gary. So the, the person that Linda was talking about. And he's in the hospital. And there's basically journ journalists are now in the building. Spike's not very happy with Linda for not taking this seriously. Because obviously Linda's... Remember how Linda was feeling about the drugs and saying, look, it's your choice. You kind of did this to yourself. How do you expect me to feel any kind of sympathy? And Linda basically doesn't want the story to go public because obviously she's worried about the reputation. But Spike is like, this could be a really, really good drug story and a drug awareness story. And then obviously he's ashamed of how Linda is and how she's behaving. And then it goes back to Linda talking to this person again. And she's talking about someone called David, who she doesn't like. Then it goes back to Fries and Linda back from another game and it went horribly wrong again. And Linda's basically walking in and there's people taking pictures of the toilet. And then she's realizing that Spike may have sold out and told them the story. And then it goes back to talking about David. And she's like, I don't like this David. He could have blackmailed the paper. He could have really hurt us. He was... um cheating and, and and all of those things and threatening to report Linda and she refused and then Linda wants to know if Spike sold out to this magazine and Colin is basically finding out more about the magazine obviously we find out that Gary ends up dying but Spike still won't say if he's the one who sold the story and then it, it, there's a flashback to Linda going to David and telling him no and then Fraz is not happy that Linda didn't play in the latest game. And then Linda is basically showing Julie a magazine article about the Gazette saying it's all about the pressures of, of journalism in the newsroom and they're resorting to drugs. It's just basically a hit job on, on, on the Junior Gazette. And then Colin basically walks in and he's like, you know what, guys? I hate to have to do this right now, but I am leaving Junior Gazette and I'm going to the magazine because they want me to be um, the sales the sales guy for, for the magazine. Julie is basically not happy with Linda for not knowing about anything that's happened. And so she's basically walking out and then it's just Linda alone. And then Linda has this massive electric shock. She collapses. And obviously the, the electrics in the building is very, very dodgy. And the place goes up in flames. There's a big fire in the newsroom. She's still there. And then obviously, I don't know who she's talking to. It may have just been Gary all along. And so she's like, and obviously Gary's like, you're in a big fire. You're running out of time. And Linda's like, someone's going to come and save me. Or I'm not going to let this happen to myself. She's, And then obviously the person talking to her is like, do you feel guilty? And Linda's like, I've got nothing to feel guilty for. So like, don't you feel guilty for the way you feel and 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 how harsh you were? And obviously she's like, I'm not. I I don't feel guilty. This is life. This is people make choices. 
If you put your mouth, if you put your head in the crocodile's mouth, what do you think gonna happen? And the fire is getting worse. Then Linda wakes up, and then she's obviously surrounded by fire and smoke. And then it goes into another sequence where Spike is trying to sleep, and then he sees like a shadow of Linda, and he thinks that Linda is dead and that Linda's a ghost. And so, obviously, she's like, "Before I leave for this other realm." I have to know, did you sell my story? Story. And then obviously Spike's like, no, I didn't. But obviously he's like, don't you know anything about journalism? They're going to find out the information from the hospital anyway. So there's no need for me to sell the story. And then obviously she tricked him and she's perfectly alive and well, but obviously she's got lots of cuts and bruises. And then she basically reasons with Colin to come back to work for the paper they get a lot of money from insurance because obviously the building went up in flames and the Spike and Linda are about to kiss, but then it kind of ends there. Yeah. And that was the end of press gang. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like quite an exciting last episode to be honest. And it sounds like you collared quite, quite a lot of the exciting ones. I've got <laughs> everyday ones, I think, but yeah, like I really liked this show. I thought it was, the acting was great some really decent actress, actors and actresses in there and like you said went on with uh, to make you know good careers and stuff like that so yeah I, yeah absolutely one of those shows again like I said at the beginning it's a it's a banging show that um, otherwise without doing this podcast wouldn't have heard anything about yeah absolutely this was a, a brilliant brilliant show um, so much so much good to say about this show and in all honesty yeah, I'm I'm so glad it lived up. So uh really, 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 really good job, guys. Next up it's Sports Night, and this came out in September 1998, and some of the things happening in the world. Google Incorporated is founded in Menlo Park, California by Stanford University PhD candidates Larry Page and Sergey Brin. The government of North Korea adopts a military dictatorship on its 50th anniversary. Iranian President Mohammad Khatami retracts a fatwa against Satanic Versus author Salman Rushdie that was in force since 1989. Rush Hour was in the cinemas and Crush by Jennifer Page was in the charts. Right, so Sports Night. So this was an American TV series about a fictional sports news show called Sports Night. It focuses on the friendship, pitfalls and ethical issues the creative talent of the program face while trying to produce a good show under constant network pressure. Created by Aaron Sorkin, the show is said to be a semi-fictional account of the ESPN Sports Center team of Keith Oberman and Dan Patrick, with Rydell representing Oberman and McCall representing Patrick. Patrick has confirmed this on his syndicated radio program, The Dan Patrick Show. And it has also been said that many of the storylines for McCall were inspired by Craig Kilburn, who was an anchor on SportsCenter during the mid-90s. The fictional Sports Night is a sports news program in the style of SportsCenter. The show broadcasts live from 11pm to midnight and it's rebroadcast through the next morning. It may broadcast at other times for special events, such as the NFL Draft. The program debuted in 1996 and airs from Rockefeller Center in New York City on the fictional continental sports channel CSC, a unit of Continental Core owned and run by Luther Sachs. Both the fictional show and the network have competitive and financial difficulties. 
The network, according to Continental Core CFO, has an annual deficit of up to $120 million. Although Sports Night does better than CNN and CISI, Dana Whitaker says that Sports Night is in third place, but we're getting our ass kicked by ESPN and Fox. Natalie Hurley replies, every show on the network is in third place. It's a third place network. While Sports Night is asked to interview Michael Jordan about his new perfume, the retired basketball star's publicity team demands final cut privilege, something it would not ask Fox or ESPN because it believes Sports Night is more desperate for ratings. Although the first season of Sports Night is a sitcom, it is often portrayed as a more of a comedy drama representative of some of Sorkin's later work on the West Wing. Sorkin intended for the series' humour to be drier and more realistic than typical sitcoms. He initially wanted the show to be recorded without a laugh track, but ABC network execs insisted on including one. The volume of the laugh track faded as season one continued and was abandoned at the beginning of season two. The show's main focus is the relationship between the characters. This includes an on-off-again flirtation romance between Dana and Casey, the partnership of Natalie and Jeremy, and Dan's ongoing problems with the relationships in general. The character of Isaac Jaff hovers over his staff as a benevolent but uncompromising father figure. The dialogue is often delivered at a rapid-fire pace and intentionally exposes many aspects of communication that go beyond the words that are spoken. The show frequently employed a technique known as walk and talk, where the characters are walking from one location to the next while in conversation. This is another characteristic of Sorkin's shows as walk and talks are used quite frequently in the West Wing and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. A number of similar themes, elements and actors carried over from Sports Night to the West Wing and later Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. The characters, so there's Daniel or Dan Rydell, who's a co-anchor, played by Josh Charles, and he's a graduate of Dartmouth College, and he has been with Casey for 10 years as the show's first season, and they've worked together. Casey McCall is the co-anchor, and he had turned down an offer to replace David Letterman on NBC. Felicity Huffman plays Dana Whitaker, and she's the exec producer, and she's been friends with Casey since college, and there's a romantic tension between the two of them. Jeremy Goodwin, played by Joshua Malina, and he's the associate producer and research analyst who has a on and on off again relationship with Natalie. Natalie Hurley, played by Sabrina Lloyd, and she's a senior associate producer. And you got Isaac Jaff, who is the managing editor, and he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who began with the Atlanta Journal and ended his career as London bureau chief for CNN. So, sports night. I'm glad you said that they um, abandoned the laugh track because oh. the laugh track, it seemed like it, it didn't know what it was. You know, it's like, it's, I saw it as more of a drama with jokes in, to be honest. I didn't see it in the sitcom. It wasn't funny enough constantly to be a sitcom. So I thought that it was, I'm glad that you said that they abandoned the laugh track. It, it didn't suit the it didn't suit the thing, and even I thought it was like jarring. When I first heard the laugh, I was a bit like laugh track, really? Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, yeah. So, and oh, you could say the rapid fire dialogue again. I was struggling to keep up <laughs> to begin with, but yeah. So you know, obviously, shows set in a newsroom, right up my street. You know, all the TV stuff, and you know, 
Um, I thought it was it was a really it was good. It was a really good TV show. There definitely wasn't you know what's a laugh track, but that you know everything else was was really good. I thought the acting was really good. Some you know some really big actors in there too. Um, uh, yeah, I thought it was a great little show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you ever see the newsroom? This was, there was a show called The Newsroom. It came out, I think, maybe 2011, 2012, around that time. Rings a bell. Let me just quickly... It's Aaron Sorkin. It. It's basically Aaron Sorkin's show. It's got um, Jeffrey Daniels, your man from Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. That's the one where the... Um, isn't that the one where the, uh, his speech about... About how pres- America's not perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, I, such a good show that was. I, and it was, I think, I believe it's an Aaron Sorkin show. So I think he did the newsroom maybe because it's like sports night kind of didn't really wasn't really allowed to uh, yeah yeah to be itself yeah or, or flourish long enough because I think that it got cancelled after the second season so I do know of the newsroom hopefully we'll cover it at some point but I haven't seen enough of it it is a very very good show um yeah this was very Aaron like this very typical Aaron Sorkin show again the writing was good I really liked it. Same as me, like right up my street. All three shows can fit into that category of it being right up my street. Yeah, this was really, really good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Obviously, it's sports, newsroom, media journalism. It's all of it ticks all of the boxes for me. And the acting, the acting was good. Like you said, there's a again a who's who of. Uh, really really good actors and actresses in this program as it as we'll talk about in the other shows as well again who's who and yeah it's just a, a shame that it never really got an opportunity to really have a run because once it got once they got rid of the laugh track i could enjoy it because the laugh track why would you do that why would you try and trip this show up yeah i mean i think it's one of those things where executives in a business think that they know everything about what should be on television right um it's what it sounds like when you described it and so like some you know someone in a suit has told some creative you should put this laugh track in and like no this doesn't kind of make sense and it's like no put it in i'm telling you put it in um and they put it in and it's rubbish obviously um because you know the professional the professional tv creators know better than uh the execs and i think that you know it does happen Every now and then, so well, I can't believe they kept it on because obviously each series was like twenty odd episodes. After the second episode, they should have got rid of the laugh track. Yeah, they should. But the thing is, it's like you know, what do you do, man? Do you like these people are paying your bills as well? You know, <laughs> so that, that is true. So yeah, but yeah, it's annoying because it definitely would have been better without it. As in, like you know, just to just to sit there and watch. But you know. Wasn't wasn't a complete disaster. Like the actual show itself was really really good. So, absolutely right. Let's uh, go right into it. Talk about episodes. The pilot is called the pilot. Yeah, I watched straight up episodes one and two. I think I'm pretty sure it's a pilot. Um, so start up in a TV station. Um, right up my street, and this is where they're kind of like they're discussing like in the like they've like sixty seconds to air or something like that, and they're trying to discuss where Helsinki is, and all the producers are going crazy trying to figure it figure it out. Um, they're like, oh, yes, in Sweden. No, it's in uh, Denmark or whatever. And I said, no, it's in uh, Finland. Um, turns out that Casey's getting a divorce and he's not happy about it. Um, and they need more people for the associate producer roles. Um, seg- they're, then they're in a kind of um, uh, meeting and uh, seg- 
23 and JJ the um uh he's the TV exec rec- representative. Yeah, yeah, so JJ's a network guy and he doesn't want to have um an African so basically that I can't remember the chap's name but he was like an like anti-apartheid fighter who got uh his legs broken and put in prison. Ntsaki Nelson. I think that was the name. I can't. I mean, they couldn't spell it in the in the. <laughs> they referenced it in the I, last. I episode. probably didn't either, to be fair. But so yeah, he 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 got his legs broken. He went to prison, and now he's a distance runner, and he's in this race, right? And basically, the the, the uh, JJ is basically saying, "I don't want this guy in our show." Um, uh, and then um, Casey like kind of goes mad and says, "Like you know, kind of what the hell are you doing?" And then JJ wants to fire Casey, but there's a lot of people on his side. It's basically, uh, uh, even Dan was like, um, who's his, who's the co-anchor, just basically just says like, it, JJ asked him about finding someone else and he said, like, listen, I'm going to pretend this conversation never happened and don't come with me, come at me with it again. Um, so uh, this guy called Jeremy Goodwin comes in for the a, for an AP position meeting and gives Dana advice about a satellite. Dana gives Casey a talk, basically says like, you know, kind of pull your socks up because everyone wants you fired because he's basically been miserable since he's like divorced and stuff like that. So uh, she gives Jeremy an interview, but he doesn't know basketball and he gives a very passionate, I don't know answer, which I thought, um, but I thought this is what I thought it was going to oh, be like. Casey. New York Knicks thing. I really like this when they're like, oh, make three things that you think can improve the New York Knicks. And he's like, okay, uh, shoot free throws, run the ball and get Spike Lee to sit down and shut up. Which, to be fair, New York Knicks could do with all of those today, right now. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I'm not that familiar with, like, with the New Even York though they Knicks did make general, the playoffs but... for like the first time in forever this year. So, uh... no, I mean, to be fair, I've watched basketball with you for the first time in my life, I think. I actually would sit down and watch a game. Uh, so anyway, he ends up getting a job. Uh, and then Casey tells Dan that he's going to leave the show. just before, like, uh, And then they end up having like a big argument, argument about it. And then a lady comes in and says like, you gotta come. You gotta see this, and the um and the the distance runner who got his legs broke, is like running and he's in the lead and he's gonna like break the world record. And Casey's point before was like about role models in the sports industry. Like she, he doesn't want to be reporting on people that are you know breaking the law and doing this and that. And the other. I want to be promoting people that are like role model worthy to his kids and stuff. So he ends up. <laughs> <laughs> just read the next line so uh, anyway so he, he calls his kid and and, and basically said like I, you know if your mum lets you watch the telly i want you to watch this thing and then if you can watch the beginning of the show if things watch this you know this runner come back from such a horrific thing to to now break a world record was was amazing so jeremy's now uh, sorry casey's now enthused again and he's like uh i want to do my job <laughs> and then jeremy kind of is speaking to this guy and he says hey i'm new here so and uh, you know i've been in this position where you know in, in a busy newsroom it's like <laughs> I'm new here. So if I'm in the way, just tell me to get out of the way. And then he, and then whilst he's having a word with that person, someone takes his chair away and then he goes to sit down on that chair and he just, (laughs) just kind of goes down. Um, That bit like completely got me. I was actually laughing out loud there. Um, Anyway, so they go on air. Casey's back, baby. He's like, you know, this sick reporter again. Uh, Then he comes back out after the show and gives Dana a hug. On to episode two. So basically it starts off. Dan's nervous. He's got a stalker. Mandy's the name of this stalker. I'm not sure why they kind of put this in, but it's kind of a bit no here nor there. Um, so everything's so busy, like as a as a newsroom kind of is. Jeremy says something about you shouldn't um, tease a, a no hitter because then something will happen, and it turns out he was right about that. Casey thinks he's not cool, um, but Dan is cool, and everyone else thinks so too. 
Um, Dana and Casey are having a meeting. Um, Dana says she thinks it's the haircut that makes him not cool. Um, Natalie has feelings for Jeremy and she doesn't want to do anything with Jeremy because she's got feelings of him for him. Um, so basically, Natalie asked if uh, Casey could look at Jeremy's first highlights tape um, and, you know, give him some pointers and things like that. So Dan says, oh, then Dan's in a meeting and, um, so sorry, Dan says that drugs is a health, he basically got in trouble for writing a, for, for writing a report about, um, he wasn't condemning drugs enough for the network's liking sort of thing. So, um, and he says it's a healthcare issue, not a criminal issue. And then they go back to having a conversation about being cool. This is Dan and Casey. And then Dan is basically making Isaac wait because um, he gives him a position of power in a meeting or something like that. And Dan's in a meeting with the bigwigs of the network and he's in trouble. And he has, to, and they basically said he has to do an on-air apology. And Dan says, no. And then Dan says, they says, like, you have a, a, like, a moral clause in your contract. And he says that actions are, are, actions are immoral, but opinions aren't basically, are, are not immoral so and then he says like the healthcare is making it difficult because when you what you said sounded like a um a recovering addict thing and then isaac kind of pulls him aside and says look just do it and then dan says if people uh if there's a woman if a woman just did it and went to the back of the bus uh change wouldn't have happened and obviously that's a rosa parks comment isaac kind of takes the guys out of the thing and he says look listen i love you you're part of the family and this is why i can say this to you and as he says there's no rich white guy that has got anywhere with him by comparing himself to rosa parks and i was like oh okay <laughs> fair dues uh so then casey gives jeremy some uh some tips to make his real short basically it's supposed to be a 30 second promo and it's eight minutes long um Dana's in a production meeting and someone's reaching out to her, but um, but advert interrupted. Oh, so she's reaching out to someone, but an, ad an advert came on the thing and then interrupted who she was actually talking to. Uh, Jeremy's in the edit suite and he gets uh, fed up with him. Uh, uh, Casey gets fed up with him. Uh, Dana has a weird conversation with Casey, like the kind of like weird like um, will they won't they thing going on here dan apologizes on air and he's and he basically takes a long pause and he says a story about how his brother died um through drugs and drinking which is why you know he's he's thinking more deeply in uh, in it and he says basically that um dan had an, uh, a younger brother who was really smart uh, called sam and his brother used to look up to him and dan was like taking drugs you know smoking dope and drinking stuff so um and then so Sam started doing that because he thought his older brother was cool because he obviously looked up to his older brother. And then he ended up dying in a drink driving, drug driving accident. So and then when they cut to the ads, instead of like, you know, dwelling on that, it's kind of business, business as usual. Uh, everyone's coming in doing makeup and hair and things like that. So it's yeah, the ending wah, is nailed the ending. Um, I didn't kind of know where the, where the, uh, where the uh, episode was going until that point. But um, yeah, great amazing episode uh, i really really enjoyed this one nice so i went all the way to the season one finale what kind of day has it been and so it starts off with casey and he's talking to dan and he's basically bragging about his son and his baseball stats and dana she buys a camera and she wants a picture of everybody and so casey's just basically going around to the newsroom talking to his son's baseball stats to anybody that will listen. Dan is talking about his love life and about how he was dating somebody who was in the process of getting divorced but ends up going back to her husband. 
Dane is trying to round up everyone for a group picture. And Casey's not there because he has to interview Michelle Kwan. I'm not sure if Michelle Kwan is a real sports person. It does sound like a sports person because that name... She's definitely a real person. I've heard that name. Yeah, I've heard that name as well. And so Dane is like, I'm going to take a practice picture. And it's the typical, you know, like you're getting the camera, you put it on the tripod, you try to put it on an auto and you try to get in there for the picture. It's not working. You walk up closer to the camera. It just starts taking pictures. And then Holly, the nanny and Charlie. So Casey's son, they're basically here to see Casey. But then Casey is still at the interview with uh, Michelle Kwan. And so Dana decides to, she, she meets up with her fella, Gordon. And obviously he's coming in there with a really, really sad face. And so she's like, why are you looking at me so sad? Unless something really bad has happened or you want to call off the engagement, what's going on? And so they go somewhere private to talk. We find out that uh, Gordon basically cheated on her. And they obviously clearly don't love each other. And so she just basically hands over the ring. And then she's like, I can be funny, you know. I am a funny, funny person. I'm I'm funny, damn it, kind of thing. And then she's like, you know what? Just just go. Just get out of here. And Holly and Charlie are waiting in the conference room. And then Dan starts to talk to Charlie. And he finds out that basically Charlie isn't doing well at baseball. And he basically lied to his dad. And so Dan is just basically talking to him and finding out about it. And then he's watching the video and he basically goes, you just basically ripped off the stats from here, didn't you? And then obviously Charlie's like, yeah, I didn't want to tell my dad that I'm good at baseball. And he made up the stats. And so Casey's basically going in there, all guns blazing. And obviously Dan's like, you need to relax, you know, this is your son. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you going to say to him? And so obviously the Casey's walking to his son. Honestly, this was such a, a really, really beautiful moment between a, a father and a son. And so Dan is talking to Casey, and then obviously Casey, he walks into Charlie and he's basically going, look, just talk to me. What's going on? Like, why did you lie to me? And and Charlie's like, I didn't want to embarrass you, Dad. I know how much you're into your sports. I wanted to be really, really good at baseball, but it turns out that I'm not. I'm really, really sorry. And then obviously... Casey's like, you try to do all of that to impress me. And then obviously he's thinking, yeah, it probably comes from my dad and his granddad and, and life wasn't fun. And then he basically looks at his son and he goes to me and he, and the line he says, in your lifetime, you will never, ever embarrass me. Don't ever, ever think that I love you for who you are. If you don't want to play baseball, you don't have to play baseball. It's all good in the hood. But yeah, that line, that got me, man. When he's like, in your lifetime, you will never embarrass me. Well, that's a really lovely, really touching moment. Then Natalie, I like how Natalie's always stopping Jeremy from putting his foot in his mouth. So obviously he's trying to like talk to Dana, but then obviously Natalie stops him. And Casey's wondering, oh, where's your engagement ring? And then obviously she lies. Say, no, I've taken it to uh, an overnight ring cleaners. And then Casey's like, eh, yeah, well, okay. And then Dana tries to take the picture again and then the camera blows up this time and then obviously she starts venting and she's obviously like of course my ring is not there you idiot what what kind of place has a, a 24 hour ring cleaning services 
And she's like, you know what, please, I just want one good thing to happen today. And then we see Isaac coming back from the hospital because I believe he suffered a stroke in a previous episode. And Jeremy's basically trying to do this whole thing, all the episode called a ninth inning rally. And it's basically, I think, is when you got bad up the hatches, bottom of the ninth, all out, all in. I don't know if I've said it right, baseball fans. If I haven't, my bad. But no, yeah, ninth inning rally. And so Dana's trying to fix the camera and get the group picture. And then Jeremy's like, this could be our ninth inning rally. And then Casey tells Dana, you know what? You are funny, man. You, you, you are hilarious. And they, and then obviously Dana's like, I've had the film on the wrong way around. They put the, the film back in. They all line up for the picture. Then they're all looking at the TV and then the camera goes off and then it's a picture of them all staring at the TV. Then I watched series two, episode one, special powers. And so we're basically seeing this clock countdown. So it's like day 23, day 40, day 71, day 79, day 86. And I think there's apparently like a 90 day rule where if you like somebody, but they broken up with someone apparently you're you've got like either you've got 90 days to ask them out or you ask them out after 90 days i'm not quite sure how that whole thing work but i think that's the whole premise of all of this and so obviously dan's like when are you gonna ask her out then and obviously dan's like we know you like her Obviously, Casey's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm scared. I'm, I'm, I'm worried, kind of thing. Obviously, yeah, he likes Dana. Dana likes him, and he's just thinking, oh, I, I can't do it. I'm too scared. Jeremy has an idea about a story, but then gets knocked back. And then Natalie tries to pitch an idea to Dana. They say no. And then Dan and Casey basically talk over each other, and they ruin their link. So they're basically talking like. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Sports Night. They both say at the same time, and then the whole link is ruined. And then obviously Dana goes to Isaac, and she's like, oh my God, do you see it? We messed up the link. It's so bad, blah, blah, blah. And Isaac's like, don't worry about it. You guys are on at 10 past this tonight. Obviously Dana's like, what? Why the hell did you not tell me? And he's like, I think I forgot. She goes, that's a pretty big thing to forget that we're going to be on at a totally different time. Dane is basically telling everyone, look, we're on late. And then she's, she's talking to um, everyone. She's like, maybe I'm a little bit concerned about um, Isaac. Maybe he's having a bit of a senior moment. And then obviously Casey misses another opportunity to tell Dana how he feels. Basically, Natalie's talking about how she might be leaving. And she thinks that Jeremy's going to be really, really upset. But obviously Jeremy's like, look, listen to me, woman. Like, I'm not going to be upset if you want to move to Galveston, Texas. Like, I will come with you. There's probably not going to be an opportunity for me to be, because obviously I think she was going to get a, a weather girl job in uh, Texas. And obviously I think her end goal and his end goal is to be in front of the camera. And, and Jeremy's like, I will travel to the ends of the world. I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'm going to support you because this is your dream. And, Whatever I'm going to do in Texas, whether I'm going to live on a ranch and herd cattle or whatever it is they do in, in, in Texas, I'll do that with you. And then Dan is basically talking to Isaac about his memory and he's trying to have a, 
an intervention of some sorts. But Isaac's like, look, I'm fine. Don't, you know, be worried about me. I don't want to be everyone's grandma. And Casey runs into, Di- runs into Dana. And it's actually been 60 days since the, the engagement broke off. And he finally plucks the courage and he kisses Dana. And obviously Casey's on top of the world. And then the final, the finale, was Quo Vadimus, which I believe in Latin means where are you going or literally where are you marching? And Isaac's basically taking a call from a company called Quo Vadimus. And they're basically putting a bid for CSC to take over. And obviously they are potential stockbrokers and they're going to put a lot, a lot of money into the um, the channel potentially, or they might have plans to do something else. And then Dan's ex-wife sends him flowers and he gets really, really spooked out. And so Casey's like, why don't you just call her? I, like, I don't want to call her. This is crazy. We, we broke up. And then Isaac didn't want Dana to spread the news about Quo Vadimus. And Jeremy's finding out info about Quo Vadimus. And he's like, you know what? If this is the last thing we do, I'm going to be settling my affairs. So he's basically returning a stapler that he borrowed. He's returning things that he's like taken, saying, look, I'm settling my affairs. Dan and Casey have to write copies for their show. Dana goes to a bar and she's stressed out. And then she bumps into a person that she's, she's bumped into for the last few days. And he's a businessman who owns a company. And he's basically trying to give Dana advice about what she should do and what he thinks is going to happen. And he's giving her good advice about successes and failures. And here's the one thing that, that, that kind of I picked up pretty quickly. And he's like, one of my uh, business advice, especially when I fail, I say to myself and I say to my team, where are we going? And if you remember what I said a couple of moments ago, Quo Vadimus. And basically, he's the businessman for Quo Vadimus. But obviously, maybe some of the views worked it out. But obviously, Dana hasn't. Rebecca's coming to the office to talk to Dan. And she's now divorced. And then she asked Dan out. But then obviously, he's like, I don't really know what's what's going to happen. Jeremy's really worried about the future. Dan and Casey might split up because there's basically they've both been offered a job in L.A., but Casey's like, look, I don't want to leave my son. I don't want to uproot him. And he's like, look, Dan, you should really take the job in L.A. And then Dan is basically talking to Rebecca about potentially going to L.A. And CSC has been sold. MDI didn't uh, match the offer. Then obviously Dana was like to the businessman, do you think MDI are going to match the offer? And then Dana's like, no, they're not. Because obviously he knows. And then Dana's giving a speech to everyone about it being sold. And she's like, it's a company called Quo Vadimus. I'm not really sure what it means. And then Jeremy puts his hand up and he's like, it means where are you going in Latin? And that's when she realizes, oh my God, who have I been talking to this whole time? She goes to the bar and she bumps into the guy. We find out his name is Calvin. And he's obviously the one that's in charge of Quo Vadimus. And she's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to keep everything. I like your show. I like the sports show. And we're staying on air. And then obviously Dana comes running back in. And she's like, look, the channel's not going to be canned. We're not going to be canned. We're all going to we're all gonna stay. So uh, that was the end of Sports Night. Nice. It was a good, really good, really good show. I, really, I, I thought these characters were really likable. 
it was interesting. You were kind of vested in it, even like from from a couple of episodes in. Yeah, I thought it was a great little show. No, yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed this. Right up my street, sports, media, everything in between. The actors were good. The actors were great. I really liked Jeremy. He was my favorite. He was just, yeah, the, the lovable nerd. and Yeah, I mean, some of his things made me laugh out loud, so yeah. No, it was, it, it was a really, really good show. And yeah, finally now we come on to State of Play. So this came out in May 2003. Some of the things happening in the world. Benevento Cellini's Cellini Salt Cellar Table Sculpture is stolen from the Kunz Thichorichis Museum in Vienna. If I've said it wrong, I apologize to Austria and Austrian listeners, potentially. Dewey is the first deer to be cloned by scientists at Texas A&M University. And Rwanda adopts a new constitution, which among many things changes the country's official name from Rwandese Republic to Republic of Rwanda. Finding Nemo was in the cinemas. And Girls and Boys by Good Charlotte was in the charts. I love Good Charlotte. Oh, they're a great <laughs> band, aren't they? Yeah. Really, um, really good band. Because they were kind of like in between genres, right? But I, I thought they were really good because they kind of like dressed very... Very gothy, wasn't it? Yeah. and uh, But then they were like kind of like a punk poppy kind of band. Mm. Um, I, I, I loved them. I thought they were great. Yes, Absolutely. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, and that is three two to me. By the way, this week. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> wow. Maybe, maybe, maybe I need to switch it up next time. But I don't know. It's, it depends what's the number one in the charts, isn't it, or what's in the charts? All right. It's not really my choice. I can't really choose. Sometimes, sometimes it's just it's there. You just got to go with it. But yes, state of play now. So this was a British television drama series written by Paul Abbott and directed by David Yates. And the series tells the story of a newspaper's investigation into the death of a political researcher. And it centers on the relationship between leading journalist Cal McCaffrey and his old friend, Stephen Collins, who is a member of parliament and the murdered woman's employer. And while investigating the murder of 15 year old teenager, Kelvin Stagg in what appears to be a drug related killing, Journalist Cal McCaffrey of the Herald and his colleagues Della and Cameron find a connection with the coincidental death of Sonia Baker, who's a young researcher for MP Stephen Collins. As their investigation progresses, they uncover not only a connection between the death, but the conspiracy with links to oil industry-backed corruption of high-ranking British government ministers. Reviewing the first episode for the Guardian newspaper the day after it had aired, Gareth McLean wrote, It's bloody magic. The story is gripping, the acting is ace, a Paul Abbott script is outstanding. His ear for dialogue and for different voices is exceptional. The exposition is swift, nifty and joyously unclunky. The characters are credible and rounded. If you can count the best dramas of recent years on the fingers of both hands, it's time to grow a new finger. And other newspaper critics were similarly impressed with the opening installment. In the Times, Paul Haggart wrote that two excellent performances from uh, John Sim and David Morrissey, ensure that the relationship has a turbulent dynamism that is credible and engaging. James Walton in the Daily Telegraph was more cautious, feeling that the opening episode had been promising, but the series as a whole still had the potential to go wrong. At this stage, however, the program is certainly good enough to make me hope not 
and ensure that I'll be back next week to find out. Bill Nye won the British Academy Television Award for Best Actor for his role. The series also won a Peabody Award in 2004 and won BAFTAs for Best Sound and Best Editing. It was nominated, but it did not win in the Best Actor category again for Morrissey in the Best Drama Serial category, Best Original Television Music and Best Photography and Lighting. It also won major awards from the Royal Television Society, Banff Television Festival, Broadcasting Press Guild, Cologne Conference, Directors Guild of Great Britain, Edgar Awards and Monte Carlo TV Festival. The characters, so Cal McCaffrey was played by John Sim. David Morrissey played Stephen Collins. Kelly MacDonald played Della Smith. Bill Nye was Cameron Foster. James McAvoy was Dan Foster. Polly Walker as Anne Collins. Philip Glenister was DCI William Bell. Mark Warren was Dominic Foy. And there was James Lawrenson as George Fergus MP. It's a shame that Bill Nye didn't win an award for uh, his role in Love Actually. But uh, I'm glad he uh, got recognised. So uh, just a little bit of background. So I watched Press Gang and then I watched State of Play. Right. So I thought that State of Play was going to be more of like a children's style show. You know, it's still dealing with things. It wasn't. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't at all, but it was so exciting, this show. And obviously you're seeing so many actors pop up here and there. And what's his name? Is I've got Cal in my head, but yeah, it is Cal. So Cal is Cal the guy related to Simon Pegg because they like look and sound exactly the same. I don't know how you thought about this show, but um, I, th- I thought this was absolutely fantastic. Um, the The drama, the suspense, everything was really good. Uh, the lead up and the kind of stories intertwining. Uh, yeah, this was like, I only watched one episode because it's an hour long, right? But absolutely amazing. I, the, the first episode, it was it definitely had me hooked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this had a lot of Line of Duty vibes. Big Line of Duty vibes. If you watch this and you like this, then you will like Line of Duty, no doubt. Yeah, or then definitely because this was like, this was absolutely brilliant. This was, yeah, again, right up my street. A very excellent BBC drama. BBC, like, sometimes they'll knock it out of the park with these uh, six episode dramas. Again, we talked about who's who. This was another who's who of British actors. If you remember Della. She was in Line of Duty, obviously playing a, a very, very prominent role in the uh, the series that just went by. Yeah, honestly, this was very, very good. The acting was on point. The scripting was on point. Like you said, it was very, very gripping, very, very exciting. Okay, uh, yeah, it's an hour long, but it's one of those things where you got to get what you can in an hour. I don't think we've missed with our shows so far. Obviously. For us, we're both busy working. We can't watch everything at every single point. We can't watch every TV show, chapter and verse. In an ideal world, we would love to. But it is it is what it is. And no, often, more often than not, the shows that are the longest are have been the best for me. And this is no um this is no exception. This is no different. And yeah, this was this was really, really good. And yeah, let's just get right into it. I'll leave the pilot to you because that's the one you watched. 
Right, so series one, episode one starts off kind of like really fast. There's someone in a train, there's someone running, and there's someone in a cafe, and it's a really nice contra zoom in a cafe. Like, you know, straight away, like very difficult and technical filmmaking technique used, and it's like really good. Man's running away, a girl's looking nervous in a cafe, and she's got a briefcase kind of like underneath her table. And this guy's running away from this other guy, and he's kind of hiding behind his skip. And this is where I realized it wasn't a children's show. The guy, like, um, kind of pokes his head out and then and comes face to face with this with this guy that's chasing him. Guy pulls out a gun and shoots him straight in the head. Like, full gore, blood splats, guy goes down, everything. Um, then a biker kind of just like happens to be driving past and stops and spots them and then tries to kind of tries to run away and get shot in the back there's a man on the tube the tube kind of stops um uh and it says like there's a body on the line or something like that then a man goes into portcullis house um so we know that he's an mp of sorts uh he's in parliament people are shouting waving their things you know because that's how to solve the world's problem to wave a piece of paper and shout in a big green room biker ends up surviving the police and ambulance crew are there and then there's a man that says sonia the guy gets a call and says uh, so a woman tells him that Sonia's died, and this and this guy that you see walking into Parliament is shocked to later find out that it's um, Stephen, and she's the woman that died and made his tube stop in the morning. Uh, in a press briefing, Stephen Collins is the guy that's uh, that you've been seeing. Has to tell the press about the death of his aide Sonia. Um, Anna's on the phone, and then she needs to t- she needs to talk to Stephen, and that's why I put maybe his wife, and it obviously was his wife. Stephen's very sad in the press room. Um, so this is where you've introduced to Bill Nye's character. And then he says, and I quote, this is a quote, this is not from me, either he's faking it or he's nobbing her, is what he said. That's what the press, how the press are dealing with it. So they see that he's crying in a press briefing. Um, uh, so Kelvin Stagg um, is the, the dead boy. He was only 15 years old. He was the one that got shot. The motorcyclist survived because a phone, probably a Nokia 3210, um, blocked the bullet and trying to get hold of Stephen. Uh, the Mail, Mirror and the News of the World are trying to get hold of this story. So the MPs are discussing it and Stephen says he was having an affair with Sonia, which is why obviously he's getting upset. Uh, Bill Nye calling it uh, day one. Uh, Stephen talks to Cal. Uh, they meet him for a drink. It turns out they're friends. Cal's reporter, Stephen's the uh, MP. Uh, night before Stephen was with Sonia and everything was normal, so he doesn't think it was a suicide attempt. Um, and then Sonia even called Stephen, left a message and sounded normal. Cal said, look, you need to go and see your parents because if you don't go see the parents and the press find out that you haven't seen the parents and they're going to crucify you. So he goes to see his parents um, and her dad says, like, basically, you're not entitled to privacy. And they recorded the whole conversation of him admitting to the parents that um, they had an affair. So that's going to be like broadcast to the press. Louis is Stephen's kid and he's come to the station to talk to him. Uh, then Stephen, they go back home and Stephen talks to Anne. She basically kicks him in the shin and then kicks him out of the house for having an affair. Uh, the paper's printing something about the suicide. Stephen goes into goes to Cal's house. A woman comes to the door and says, like, you need to meet me at a cafe. I've got some information for you. That's Della. Yeah, I didn't write some, some of the smaller roles names. Um, so Stuart Brown, I think Stephen's, uh, he thinks that Stephen's connected to the murders. Uh, the woman tells Cal and Cafe, but I didn't understand this part, so that was a bit confusing for me. Uh, so Kelvin is the guy that got shot. Craig Livingstone is the courier. Uh, there's nothing connecting them. Cal goes to see Kelvin's parents and nearly gets a beating. Um, 
mum wants a funeral, but he's obviously the, the body haven't hasn't been released yet. Um, Kevin turns out turns out that Kelvin stole a bag, and what he does is he's this he was he wasn't a everyone thinks he's kind of this drug. He's involved in drugs and stuff like that, but it wasn't the case. He was, it was a bit more simple than that. He would steal bags, and if the contents weren't valuable, he would try and sell the bags back to the previous owner. Um, so you kind of, you know, it's kind of like petty crime kind of thing going on. Uh, and basically, it happens so to this silver silver briefcase. He basically stole the briefcase and trying to sell it back to the owners. Um, and speaking to Andrews, writing down what she's saying, and she's upset. She basically says, "Look, I listen. I don't care that she's dead." Um, uh, that's uh, Sonia, obviously. Kel asked Stephen about Kelvin, um, and Kelvin called Sonia the morning of the death, um, you know, to, to organize this briefcase being sold back. Cal and Stephen have a falling out. Uh, Stephen says he's sorry, and then they just go back to the house again. Uh, Sonny Stag called, and that's probably Kelvin's brother. I oh, sorry, it was. Um, he says, look, I need you to meet someone. Um, and it's the girl from the cafe. She needs cash. So this is where you find out that Kevin sold a bag. The girl tells him that she was with him. The bag has a gun inside. Pictures of Stephen and Sonia having an affair inside there as well. Um, so they come up and get it. Stephen threatened them. Looks like Stephen threatened them. It looks like, And this is my opinion, but it looks like he's ordered the hit. And it basically was only a money scam. So um, Cal, gives her, Cal gives her the money for the story. He shows it to the um, big guy and he says he says it to um, to Bill Nye's character. I actually don't know what his character's name is, but he said, he basically said, I, t- I spent £500 of the company's money without authorization. And then um, Bill Nye says, if that's uh, if it was on a prostitute, it's coming out of your wages. Uh, but he shows it he shows it to them. They have to talk to the lawyers and they have to discuss, are they hindering a murder investigation by keeping the evidence that they have? Or is it just like newsworthy kind of thing? So it goes to the hospital and the woman in this uh, DI are having an exchange and she says that, listen, your witness needs to be protected. And then there's a fire in the hospital um, and there's an, basically it's an attempt to kill the witness. And then they're in the, they're in the stairwell and the armed police come, but you, you kind of get this man watching from a distance kind of vibe. And then there's a sniper shot and DI Brown gets killed. And then um, Gene Hunt from Ashes to Ashes comes in here. Um, and he's the kind of the new guy taking over the case. Um, and there's a man standing there. Like it's kind of like a someone um, sees this man standing there, but I don't know who he was because the quality of the footage wasn't that great. Um, yeah, yeah, like that's the end of the first episode. So a lot going on, but super duper exciting. Like I'm talking, this was like incredible. Yeah, I mean, I skipped all the way to episode five and then six. Um, okay, so in between, from what I read, so what happens is Cal and Stephen's ex-wife, Anne, they have a little thing, like a relationship. So that happened. Then uh, Cameron hires his son, Dan, to work on this uh, story and trying to figure something out. We find out that um, UX Oil are part of this whole corruption and yeah there's another person in the thing now called dominic and he's part of the conspiracy because i think he used to date sonia at, at some point that's a pretty uh rubbish summary of everything that happened in between then i went yeah all the way to episode five and so dan cal and della are trying to present their findings to cameron 
And then I think they have evidence about Sonia having a weekend away with Steven. Cameron is thinking, you know what? I need to have this investigation wrapped up because, yeah, basically the higher-ups don't really like what they're doing. And Cal is still trying to protect Steven because he thinks that there's a massive stitch-up happening. And Cameron's being warned about implicating the government. And so Cal is going to see Greer, who is Steven's secretary. And we find out that uh, Greer was the one that picked Sonia as a researcher, even though she's like the least qualified person. Dominic's going to the police station. He claims to have been in a relationship with Sonia. He thinks that he's being followed. And so Cal wants Dominic to be picked up from the police station. Della then meets up with Dominic at the police station and then they go to a hotel together. Helen, who's another reporter, she's meeting up with uh, MP George Fergus about Sonia and the job. And he's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he's like, if you don't end the story right now, the only thing that's going to be ending is your career. He just basically sends her off marching. Then Dan is talking to Stephen and they go back into his room. And Dominic has all this information, but he wants assurances about his life. And so Cal and Della are trying to interview him. They're basically trying to find out more about Sonia and they're trying to find out any evidence that they can find. Dominic is obviously worried and paranoid. And Sonia basically wanted to like leave and didn't want to be part of the conspiracy. But Paul was trying to blackmail her, find out that she was in love with Stephen as she was pregnant and carrying his baby. And I think the whole thing was that Stephen was going to leave his wife and family for Sonia. And then Stephen confronts Dominic and he tries to attack him. Stephen runs away and then Dominic is taken to the hospital. George is filing an injunction against Helen in the newspaper. Cameron wants to change the whole newspaper for the, 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 for the next day's news. And he's basically like, right, everybody who isn't working on the story, you need to all leave the newsroom and you need to come with me to the pub where you can watch me get drunk. And so they're all leaving. And basically the, the, the front line is that UX Oil is gagging the newspaper. And we find out that Sonia was working with UX Oil and she was using Stephen to try and get information and lobbying and corruption and all those things. Cameron now no longer is the, uh, the editor and they basically get someone else. I think Yvonne, that's it. They get someone called Yvonne. And she's now going to be the the editor, not 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 Cameron. Cameron's just going to basically sort of sit in the background, and the new editor is basically refusing to go with the story, and she drops the appeal for the injunction. And Stephen is trying to. Stephen's like, you know what? I'm going to refuse the seat because obviously the whole kind of blackmail and the whole corruption was that Steve is going to get a, a safe seat somewhere and George was going to offer it to him. And Stephen's like, you know what? I'm not going to take your seat. I'm coming after you, George. And you, and the secretary is confirming everything. And then George is telling Stephen that no one took money from UX Oil. And then Cal is going to see Kelvin's family and they're basically trying to find the source who gave the suitcase. 
then it came to the finale and Stephen goes to see Cal at his house. Obviously, now we realize that there's one big cover-up. Everyone knew who Sonya was, and they basically set Stephen up. And then Stephen now wants Cal to write the story and wants it blown wide open. So they're printing all of these documents. Stephen is implicating George and anyone higher up. And Cameron wants assurances from Stephen about the, the story, because obviously Cameron's like, okay, I want to talk to Stephen. Make sure that he doesn't like chicken out at the last minute. And then Della and Dan are seeing Dominic in the hospital. And he's obviously giving evidence on his behalf. Yvonne is having a look at the story, but it's not convinced. And then obviously Stephen, I believe, signed an affidavit about the whole story. And Sonny's now talking to the police about his brother's death. And Stephen's talking to Helen and Della and giving them all the evidence they need for the story. And there's a an email, like a really important email that's like important evidence. And Dan makes sure he gets that email. And then Stephen resigns from the select committee. And Stephen's basically trying to speak to his ex-wife after Kyle was just talking to her. And then Della is calling someone from UBX about Sonia. I believe it's someone called Richard. And he's denying everything. And Della wants to meet up with him in person. And he tells all. And Della's like, basically, yeah, you need to go to the police. Otherwise, it's going to come back to you. And Stephen's having a massive venting about George. And he's drinking heavily. And Cal is basically recording all the evidence. Because he's just basically slurring his words. He's basically coming up and he's saying lots of things. Cal's got it on tape recording. Richard is basically driving his car. And he commits suicide. Because obviously I think he couldn't handle the pressure. And he basically stands in the middle of a motorway. And lets a lorry absolutely whack him. Cal is staying with Anne and Anne is starting to feel sympathy for Stephen and Cal is like how can you feel sympathy for Stephen he could be part of the conspiracy and Anne is like look I want to support the the father of my kids and so I think they decide to exhume Kelvin's body because of new evidence Dominic's trying to leave the police end up catching up with him and he gets arrested and in the newspaper, Helen is writing up questions for the energy minister, I believe George Fergus. And Cal wants to talk to Stephen. And so Cal is basically working out the story. And he's he's exposing Stephen. And it turns out that Stephen was part of the conspiracy all along. And Cal exposes him and he exposes the lies. We realized that we found out that Sonia stood up to UBX. UBX all, whatever they're called, because she was actually in love with Stephen and obviously carrying his baby. And Stephen obviously knew that Sonia could get killed for this and he basically admits his part in the killing. Cal goes back to the newspaper. Della takes a tape recorder. It's all been transcribed and the police are there now and the newsroom get their big story. Stephen is headed to the police station and the story is published. And the big headline was I killed Sonia. I was part of the conspiracy. And that was the end of State of Play. Sounds pretty damn good to me, man. Very exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. Part of the, he was part of the conspiracy all along. And yeah, this was incredibly gripping. Shame it was uh, an hour long because I think at the end of it, I was absolutely exhausted because I think I watched it back to back to back. So it might not have been the smartest thing to do. Maybe it would have been better to 
when you're working full time and you've got to do these as well, it's sometimes it's 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 hard going. But you know, we we have been introduced. Well, I have uh, three amazing shows this week, so I'm, I'm yeah. happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. And yeah, we have to rank these shows from three to one. Right. So at th- and like again, three shows, three great shows. Um, not much in this, but Sports Night is number three. State of Play was the best for me. Press Gang was second, and Sports Night was third. Okay, okay. Very interesting. Uh, in at number three for me, huh. I'm going to be petty. I'm going to say Sports Night, only because of the laugh track. I've got to find something to kind of pick at. I don't really want to do it, but it is what it is. But yeah, Sports Night was outstanding. Loved this show, loved the acting, loved everything about it. Number two for me was Press Gang for the uh, bad American accent. But bad American accent aside, again, great show, outstanding show, excellent scripting. Everything about this show was great. And number one for me was State of Play. This was brilliant, outstanding, typical, excellent BBC drama. Who knows if we actually did watch this when it dropped in 2003. I wouldn't rule it out if we did or didn't, but I can't remember if we did or not. But honestly, this was so, so good. And this show deserves everything that comes with it. It's going to be interesting to see if Sportsnet ends up now on the platforms because shows that we tend to cover end up going on like major platforms. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but yeah, they're both yeah, all free shows. Obviously, Press Gang's already on um, BritBox, but yeah. Yep, honestly, they were very, very outstanding. And I recommend you go out of your way to watch all three of these shows. They're on the internet somewhere. I'm sure you can find them. And go ahead and watch them because they are all brilliant. And I can't recommend them enough. And on that bombshell, we're going to bring the show to an end. And as I was talking about shows being on platforms, The Golden Girls is going to be on Disney+. Plus. I believe it's on there right now. So Nice, I'll check it out. Obviously, I couldn't. We obviously covered the show on yesterday's capers. We loved it very, very much. And honestly, guys, go out of your way and watch this. Particularly UK fans who may not be familiar with the Golden Girls, I would definitely recommend you watch this program. Honestly, the Golden Girls was so much fun, such a a, a great little show. And yeah, go out and watch this. And yesterday's capers is available wherever you get your podcast from. Wherever you are around the world, we appreciate each and every one of you listening. Turn on your notifications and episodes will drop either Friday or Saturday. And we're available on all the podcast platforms. All of them that you can think of, we're on there or we should be on there. On the socials, we're on Instagram. It's Yesterday's Capers 1. On Twitter, Yesterday Capers. Facebook.com forward slash Yesterday's Capers. YouTube.com forward slash Yesterday's Capers. You can find me on the socials. On Instagram, it's Abdullah underscore Molim. On Twitter, it's Abdullah Molim, all one word. Give me a holler, give me a shout, and join us next time for another episode of Yesterday's Capers. <laughs>